Father, we just want to thank you for your servants down through the ages. We thank you for the mighty men and women of God through whose life experience and example you've got so much to teach us. And we want to pray now that you'll open each of our hearts and our minds to hear and to obey your word. Speak to us, Lord. Bring your compassion and grace into our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I I don't know how you would have reacted to Daniel if you'd met him as a young man, but let me just tell you tongue-in-cheek what I think my reaction to him would have been, and it would have been something along the lines of, what a scunner. For you see, this was a young man who seemed to have everything well-connected from the nobility, highly intelligent, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, we're told, well-informed, quick to understand, but at the same time, something of an athlete, without any physical defect, good-looking, handsome, and to top it all off, it would seem as if he was something of a charmer as well, somebody who could get alongside people and easily make and build relationships. That, I think, is what is implied when it says that Daniel was qualified to serve in the king's palace, that he was a bit of a, a diplomat then. To put it in modern terminology, he was a people person. And as well as all this, later events as they unfold show Daniel to be a man of deep spirituality and of dearly held principles. See what I mean? What a scunner. He really did have it all. He had it all. And as a young man, what a glittering future he had before him within the people of God. There seemed to be no doubt in his early days that this young man with all the right connections and all the right attributes, that he was going to rise up to the very top of the tree, that he was going to marry the right woman, that whatever career he chose, he was going to be at the very top, that he was going to have a wonderful family, and he was going to be a real influence on the spiritual life of the nation. But then, the wheels came off the bus for Daniel. And for all God's people. And it's all tied up with the event we read of in verse 1 and 2. Nebuchadnezzar's besieging of Jerusalem. Now the the background and practicalities of what happened here was that, that Babylon, under Nebuchadnezzar's leadership, had just reached the very height of their powers. They'd just defeated Egypt in a crucial battle and were now for a little while the superpower in their region. With God's people being part of the plunder that Babylon took from Egypt. For you see, previously they'd been, Israel had been a subject nation of Egypt. Now though, they were under Babylon's power. And Nebuchadnezzar with his army rose along to the gates of Jerusalem just to make sure that they know who now is in charge. But when it says here that Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem, well, I don't think we should be thinking at this point in terms of a full-scale war, siege-type situation, operation. That actually comes later. 2 Kings 24 from verse 10 talks of this, of another visit by Nebuchadnezzar. When this time he does wage war against the city. Well, this time, not just some articles from the temple are taken, but all its treasures. 
where this time not just a few specially chosen captives are taken, but rather almost the whole population is taken into captivity. Really here then, Nebuchadnezzar, he was basically just flexing his muscles, but he was doing it with a purpose. For you see, as he here takes away the cream of Judah's young men to Judah, to, to Babylon, sorry, in the process, he weakens their future leadership potential, and by the talents of these young men, he also strengthens his own country, Babylon, their structures and institutions. Well, so you see, as he does this, the way is being prepared for future conquest. What we should not underestimate, though, is the impact that this would have both in the people of Israel as a whole and on Daniel and his compatriots. For you see, there were certain things at this time that God's people believed were unalterable absolutes as a result of that covenant that God had made with them through Abraham. He had said, I will be your God and you will be my people. He had said that they were to have their promised land and the people were sustained by that promise through all the ups and downs of their life together, which had been many up to this point. Even when the kingdom was divided, when the northern part of the kingdom previously fell to the Assyrians, when only Judah had been left, still they continued to believe, still they were convinced that because of God's promise, because of God's covenant, that because Jerusalem was in their territory, because this was where the Messiah, the second David, was to come to, ushering in a new era of blessing and prosperity, not only for Israel, but through them to the entire world. Still they were convinced, they remain convinced, that they, that their city, their temple, were sacrosanct, untouchable, indestructible. But now you see, with Nebuchadnezzar's dark shadow looming over them, well, things just don't seem to be working out in the nice, neat way that they'd suppose they would. And as for Daniel, well, he transported to this strange new land of Babylon. He'd lost his people, his family, his future. He was being taken to live and die in a place that he didn't want to be. Why, he even lost his name. And notice that he and his friends, all had names ending with either L or R. That's because all these names have got their roots in God. And his name's Elohim, Yahweh. Daniel's name, you see, what it actually means is, the Lord will be my judge. That is, the Lord will see justice done. The Lord will set things right. But right now, it looks as if there will be no justice for Daniel. It seems as if the promise of his name, like so many other promises of God, lie broken beneath the heel of this Babylonian conqueror. So where is God in all this? Does he know? Does he care? Whatever is God doing? Well, let's just try and clear up a few things here. And so set things up for what I want to go on to say both this morning, today, and in, in future weeks.
So the reason why God's people ended up in Babylon, and it was inevitable really, but it was still their responsibility. It was because they had sinned. It was because they repeatedly had broken that covenant with God. You see, they expected its blessing, but ignored its conditions. Now, Daniel was a godly man. We know he was, but still he was also one of the people of God. And so to an extent, he suffered God's judgment along with the rest. But let's you know, bring this right home. Let's bring it to ourselves. We too who by faith in Jesus Christ find our place within the people of God, we too live also in Babylon. We do, yes, we do. If you see in the the Bible, Babylon is often used as a, a symbol, as a symbol of this sinful world, as a symbol of the powers that dominate it, the powers that dictate its course. So we, you see, are God's people, but like Daniel... We are also part of a sinful human race. And so we live in Babylon. Like him, as 1 Peter 2.11 puts it, we live in an inhospitable and hostile land. And we live as aliens and strangers. And like him, we can know the full force of Babylon upon us as it tries alternatively to attract us, to seduce us, to win us, or to crush us, demoralize us, and destroy us. So you see, like Daniel, we live in Babylon. His struggles are our struggles. His questions are our questions. And today, we're going to begin to try and answer some of our questions by looking at Daniel's example and experience. Questions like, how can we live for God in Babylon? What is God doing in Babylon? And along the way, we're we're going to think of, of how Babylon, of how this world tries to get its claws into our lives and the kind of results that we can then expect if this happens in our lives. Now, interestingly, people involved in social studies. They've studied people who, like Daniel, have gone through traumatic experiences, who've gone through times of of great suffering. And what they found was that though many were crushed by this, yet a few, like Daniel, survived and even thrived in the most trying and testing of circumstances. We're talking here about prisoners of war from the Korean War, from the Vietnam War, It was mainly an American study. Celtic supporters during the 1990s. But what they found was that those who survived, and who thrived, supporters in the 2000s, who thrived were those who never let go of their fundamental values, who held on, no matter what, to their values. So what were the values then that kept Daniel afloat in a sinful world? In Babylon, in a world hostile to God. Well, I believe first that he honored God. That he honored God. And this is seen here in his refusal to eat the king's food. Now, you see, right up to this point, it seemed very much as if the the Babylonians are in control. As if they've set the pace. They've dictated what goes on. But here, Daniel draws the line. This is as far as 
as he will go. That resolve, that word in verse 8, is actually in the original. It's, it's a very, very strong word. It means basically that Daniel determined in his heart that this is a non-negotiable. Now, what I think we have to begin by realizing and recognizing at this point is that it took great courage to even dream of defying Nebuchadnezzar in this kind of way. Because even in that, that cruel age, he was notorious for his outright brutality to those who opposed him. In Second Kings 25, there's one particularly terrible example of this. A king, Zedekiah, rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar captures this rebel king and his sons. So what does he do? He has Zedekiah's sons killed before his eyes. And then he has Zedekiah blinded. So that the last thing that this man ever sees is the dying breath of his own children. I ask you, would you like to go to this man and tell him you you didn't like what's on the menu for tonight? So it's easier maybe then to understand the reluctance of this chief official to involve himself in any way in this. I mean, you've maybe heard of a hands-on management style or a hands-off management style. Well, Nebuchadnezzar had a heads-off management style. You know, if you crossed him, your head was off. Some of us here maybe think we've had tough bosses in our time. But I want to say to you that when Nebuchadnezzar terminated people, he terminated them. It was finished. But Daniel persisted. He works his way down the chain of command and finally gets permission for a trial period and flourished on it to the extent that soon everyone is on vegetables with them. It doesn't incidentally say how the rest of the young men in training respond to this, but can you imagine that one night you're sitting down to the king's T-bone state, the next night it's Daniel's vegetable bake. I don't know what it did for his popularity, but it did show tremendous courage though. For Daniel to take this stand. And the, but the big question for me is, why? Why did he take it? And, and why this? Why here did he draw the line? I mean, he accepted a new name given to him by the Babylonians. He was ready to study Babylonian culture. He was ready to work and to serve, to give of his best within the Babylonian government system. So why here did he refuse to eat of the king's food. Well, because I believe the issue here was one of holiness, one of commitment, one of consecration. Of the fact that for Daniel, the Lord had to be the unrivaled first in his life. Because you see, that was the root purpose behind all the food laws and and the ritual laws that you find in the Old Testament. These were given to underline to the people of God That they had to be different. That they were called to be holy and committed and consecrated. And they had to be that if they were really to be the Lord's. To belong to the Lord. But you know, I believe there's even more than this going on here. Even more than this. You see, in Old Testament times, sharing a meal with somebody involved a commitment to friendship. You're saying that you're my friend. But to take food from a king though, on a regular basis, meant that you owed your loyalty to that king. That you owed your wholehearted allegiance to that king. What Daniel here then is saying 
is that he will not allow Babylon, he will not allow Nebuchadnezzar to seduce him, even by T-bone stakes, from his first loyalty to the Lord. What he's saying is that they cannot buy him, that they cannot tempt him from the Lord. So Daniel then is not just saying yes to God here, he's also saying a very definite and positive no to Babylon. But when you put it all together, Daniel's willingness to accept a new name, his willingness to learn about Babylonian culture, yet his refusal to eat the king's food. What do you see what's going on then here? Daniel is willing to cooperate with the society around him. He's willing to learn about it so that he could most effectively interact with it. He's willing to serve within it and to do it to the very best of his ability. But he will not do anything. He will not allow himself to be seduced or tempted in any way into doing anything that will involve compromising the heart of his faith. That will involve compromise in terms of his relationship with God and of God's first place in his life. One writer, Ronald Wallace, he says of Daniel and his friends here, they remain inner strangers to the life and culture in which they are outwardly and fully involved. They never sacrifice their inward conviction that they belong body and soul to a kingdom other than Babylon. Cooperation then, but never compromise where his relationship and walk with God is concerned. That was the pattern of Daniel's life in Babylon. And I believe that it's as valid today for us as it was then. And my friends, the, the later crucial decisions that, that Daniel made that we're going to look at together in, in coming weeks, plus the, the immediate results of, of this decision here, that is Daniel and his friends going to the top of the class, ending up as the king's chief advisors. All of this was able to happen because Daniel drew the line here and because God honored that decision. You see, Daniel resolved in his heart that he was going to honor God. And so he wouldn't allow himself to get tangled up in. He would not allow himself to get seduced by anything that would take him from that. Let me tell you a story I heard a, a while ago. Uh, and stay with me. It is, it is a relevant story. It's a story I heard John Ortberg first told this story. I, was, I heard him preach and he said that it was true. You can decide. And what it is, you've got to get the picture. It was a, a biker sitting at the traffic light somewhere in California on his Harley Davidson. And he, Harley, I think that's it. And he's everything that you would um, imagine a biker to be, you know, covered all over in tattoos, greasy bandana around his head, big bushy beard, leathers covered in swastikas and skulls and crossbones. And he's sitting there revving up this huge bike when suddenly... This little old guy draws up beside him in his lime green moped. And he goes a wee pat, 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 pat. And he's there, the wee engine turning over, and he's got a helmet with a little peak front, a very special. And he looks over at the biker, this old guy, and says, Sonny, that's quite a machine you've got there. Do you mind if I come over for a look? Gets the grunt, whatever you want. Well, the old guy's pretty short-sighted, so he has to get close up 
And he's there admiring the gleaming chrome work, admiring the shining paintwork of the, this magnificent machine. And then, just then, the lights changed. And this biker decides that he'll show everybody what this bike is about. Within seconds of the lights changing, he's up to about 180 miles per hour. And he looks in his mirror, and to his amazement, he sees a dot coming rapidly towards him. And somebody's actually closing up on him. And it's unbelievable. He can't believe it. And this someone flashes past, then turns around and comes back towards him. And as it goes past him, this time he just catches a glimpse and he sees that it's this old guy on the lime green moped. He comes toward him again, turns round again, but this time there's one monumental collision. The Harley Davidson is wrecked. That magnificent machine is now just a mangled lump of metal. But the biker miraculously picks himself up. And staggers over to this OAP who's just lying there among the debris. And even this hardened man, this biker, feels compassion. So he leans over and asks him, Is there anything I can do for you? Yes, please, sonny, he says. Could you unhook my braces from your handlebars? <laughs> now you see, I guess, is it a true story? Well... This is a picture, though. It really is. There is a relevance here. This is a picture of what can happen when we're seduced by sin, when we're tempted to compromise. Control yourself, Sandy. (laughs) For you see, you and I would never purposely hook our braces to something dangerous. We wouldn't do that. But we might think it's okay just to get in a little bit closer, just to lean over and get a closer look. I want to say to you that the Christian world today is absolutely littered with the mangled remains of men and women who never intended to get hooked, to get drawn in, but who did just want to have a closer look at the shiny colours of some forbidden sin. For example, the husband who decided that it was okay just to play around at the borders of adultery, but who then finds themselves pulling themselves out of the wreckage of a broken marriage with a weeping, broken family standing on the sidelines. And we could go on and on giving examples. The challenge is, though, for each of us, is there something that we're getting tangled up in? Is there something that we are in danger of being seduced by, that's causing us to compromise our relationship with God, the holiness of our life before God. A pastime is just becoming too important. A career drive, maybe, that's gone beyond healthy ambition. A relationship whose basis, you know, is not right before God. Now, I said earlier that Daniel made this stand early in his life. And that then enabled him to make the big decisions that he had to make in the future. But remember again, he could never have made the right decisions growing forward if he hadn't drawn the line at this point. So what about you? Is it time for you to draw the line somewhere today? 
Is there something that you need to deal with? Something maybe that you need to repent of in order to give God his place of honor in your life? Much more briefly, I want to touch on another two values of Daniel's that enabled him to thrive in Babylon. And that is, that as well as the fact that he honored God, he also trusted God. Yes, Daniel believed that God was at work in his circumstances, despite how awful these circumstances seemed. Only that can explain his actions. The why it was happening, the how God was at work, he didn't know. But Daniel believed in his God, and he believed God was at work. He believed that there was meaning and purpose behind what he was going through. He believed that God could bring meaning and purpose from what he was going through. And so Daniel trusted God. And of course he was right to do so. For verse 2 here makes it clear that, that God was the one who was in charge when Nebuchadnezzar went to Jerusalem. In fact, Jeremiah 27 goes even further than this when it tells us that the Lord used Nebuchadnezzar to discipline the nations. Yes, and as later events prove, God was at work in in Judah's downfall. He, He was at work in the later loss of the temple. And God was with Daniel in Babylon in what seemed to be that God forsaken place because he rose to be the chief advisor to the king in what then was the most powerful nation on earth. The Lord then put Daniel in a, into a position of influence in world affairs that could never have been his if he'd remained in Jerusalem. It was a painful road then, a hard road at times. But it got Daniel to where he needed to be, to where God needed him to be. Now again, those outside the Christian community who have studied in this area have found that it's not intensity of suffering that causes people to give up in life. It's not that. It's when people feel that they're suffering and that their life has no meaning or purpose. That's when people give up. For example, I read the story some time ago now of an American prisoner of war in Vietnam who was persuaded to cooperate with the Viet Cong because of their promise that as soon as it was possible, they would use him in a prisoner exchange. And eventually, he came to realize that this was a lie, that he'd been too valuable, become too valuable to let go. He felt as if there was no hope of him ever getting out. And within weeks, this previously healthy young man was dead. But you see, This was never the case for Daniel. And this should never, at least it need never, be the experience of God's people. Because we know, more than Daniel did, we know how God worked in and through the suffering of Daniel and so many others like him in the Bible. We know, don't we, how God took that most terrible experience of all of suffering. The suffering of Jesus at the cross of Christ. And we know how by it though. How God defeated Satan, sin and death and from it brought the glory and the victory of the resurrection. So while at times the suffering that we go through in life can be hard to bear and it can and can be impossible to understand. Yet, I truly believe that God by his sovereign power is able to take whatever 
we go through. That our God is able to take the worst that this world, the devil, the worst that Babylon can throw against us. And God is able to use it. To make us more effective servants, maybe. To draw us closer to him. To enable us to glorify him more and more. To bring blessing into our lives. God is able. If only we are ready to turn to him in faith. Rather than turn from him in despair. If only we are ready to trust him. God is able. The final value in Daniel's life that enabled him to thrive in Babylon, I believe, was that he valued fellowship. For it's obvious from the the first three chapters of of Daniel, if nothing else, that the fellowship he shared with, let's call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that this was of vital importance to Daniel. These four men, they, they prayed together, studied together, shared together. They supported one another. And eventually, they directed the life of this great nation, this empire, together. Now, they each had their individual walk with God. They each had their individual decisions to make. But I believe their fellowship was key to these men. And there's no doubt that in times of real suffering, in times of true hardship, that knowing that you're part of a real community, knowing that there are others who think as you do, that there are those who stand with you, who feel for you, who care for you, there is no doubt that this can mean so much. It can make the difference between us standing or falling. Jim Stockdale read this story. He rose to be an admiral in the U.S. Navy, but he had the unfortunate distinction of being the man who spent the longest period of time as a prisoner of the Viet Cong, 2,714 days. And because he was the the highest-ranking officer they had at the, the particular camp he was in, they treated him awfully. On one occasion, he had his legs and arms shackled, and he was forced to spend three days naked without food or water under the blazing sun with guards beating him to keep him awake right through this time. The prisoners in this camp, though, had devised ways of communicating with one another, so they used towels. I don't know what they did. They flicked them in some prearranged way to communicate a five-letter message to him, and it was G-B-U-J-S. God bless you, Jim Stockdale. And he later said, that when he felt like giving in, when he felt as if his sanity was leaving him, that it was this message and it was the love that lay behind it that kept him holding on. You know, I think sometimes, too often today, because we're not forced into true community and true fellowship, because we're not forced in that way, well, we kind of try to limp through life without it. We maybe spend time together as God's people But we don't really trust people. Pride and fear stops us opening up and being honest to people. We haven't really then got lives of mutual dependency. And because of that, we rob ourselves of one of the greatest resources God has given to us. One another. 
You see, God wants us to love one another. He wants us to be open and honest to one another. He wants us to support each other through the hard times and at times to knock the rough edges off one another. And he wants us together to grow into Christ here in this, our Babylon. Let me tell you, the way things are and the way things have been have not the way, are not the way that things have to be. They can change. We can change. The way that we live together, that can change. If only we're ready to open ourselves up to God and one another. Daniel thrived in Babylon. And so can we. If we make his values our values. So let's do it. Let's just not hear about it. Let's do it. Let's honor God. Let's trust God. And let's count fellowship with God and one another as precious as Daniel did. And with, and with him, with God, and his strength together, let us overcome in our Babylon. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today that we know that you're the God who stands with your people. And whatever struggle we go through, whatever hardship we go through, and we go through many in a sinful world, we cannot escape. But Lord, we know that you're with us. We know that you stand by our side, and that if we honor you, if we trust you, if we're ready to seek fellowship and be strengthened by your people, we know that you're able to carry your people through. You're able to bring us from where we are now and take us and use us in mighty ways. Lord, be with your people today. Speak into their hearts and bless them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.